Welcome to The Commentary, a weekly conversation about vision, worship, and life at Grace Presbyterian Church. I'm Mark Bertrand, the pastor of Grace, and my fellow commenter in today's episode is Cameron Brooks. Together, Cameron and I will talk about feasting, eating and drinking, in particular, the theology behind eating and drinking, because the Bible has a lot to say about food and drink, and it's pretty complicated. As the holidays kick off, a season of lots of eating and drinking, it's not a bad idea to reflect on how creation, sin, and grace all affect the way we come to the table. Our Women's Discipleship reading group has just finished reading through Tim Keller's book, The Prodigal God, and because that book follows the narrative of the story of the prodigal son. It, of course, ends in a feast because there is a great party at the end that the father throws to welcome the son back. And thinking about that you know, ending in a feast brings up a lot of thoughts for me, the way that our services end with the, the feast of communion, celebrating the Lord's Supper, the way that our eschatology points to a great wedding feast at the end of time, but also other feasting that uh, we do. I know, for example, um, watching the uh, video Bible study for the life of the world, that ends with an episode which is devoted to a feast. And we've always had this idea that it would be cool to do the Bible study and then for the final installment, do a feast just like they do in the study and Cameron was just sharing with me that his small group actually followed through and had a little bit of a feast when they met last. So Cameron, how did the small group feast go? Well, wonderful. It was, yeah, it was fantastic. It was sort of a friends giving thing, small group Thanksgiving feast. And we probably had at least 10 people around one table and table was packed and the food was great and everybody contributed and yeah it was fantastic just last night so i think there's something about coming together over a meal the idea of gathering around the table breaking bread together that at least for christians raises all sorts of theological resonance and so in this episode we're going to think a little bit about food and drink and we're going to try to do it from a theological perspective to kind of think about what the Bible says about feasting and maybe about fasting as well. Just what the role of eating and drinking is in the life of faith. So first of all, let me just ask you this question, Cameron, just, you know, generally speaking, um, when you think about eating and drinking and what the Bible has to say, what are some of the big themes that kind of jump out? Yeah. Yeah. I was trying to think about that. I think first maybe is the garden of Eden. You know, this is, this is a food or this is a garden furnished with food from the Lord and that's good. And then there's the fall of course, which happens by food. So that's, that's an important moment right up yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of, you know, I, I'm racking my brain to think, do people eat prior to, to this? Like, do we get scenes of eating before Genesis 3? But but it seems like, turns out, you know, eating is, is a really bad thing yeah. to do, depending <laughs> on what you're eating. Right. Yeah, so then, I don't know, you keep going, and then maybe I think after 
after the flood when, mm-hmm. I mean, this is maybe a more obscure and smaller passage, but God gives animals over to humans, you know, to, to eat them. And he kind of authorizes that in a sense, but it's clearly a result of all of this sin that's going on. So that's another thing I think of. I also think of skipping way ahead. I mean, you think to Jesus and his interactions with food, whether it's the wine at the the wedding or multiplying bread and fish. And then of course the Lord's supper and then maybe skip to the end. Like you said, this wedding feast in revelation that's mentioned. There are obviously lots and lots of other moments though, but sometimes I think we, we don't think about all of the food references in the Bible. I don't know. Are there any big other ones that you would think of? Well, I think, you know, if we want to think through some of the, the complicated ones, right. Yeah. Um, the Old Testament division of of things into clean and unclean gets into mm-hmm. the realm of food. So that there are some things you should eat and other things you shouldn't eat, and various reasons for for not eating them. And I, to me, I feel like that's a, a a timely kind of thing because we, you know, in the twenty first century, still have this complicated relationship with food. So that's an Old Testament example. And then, you know, in the New Testament, you think of the Apostle Paul and the whole problem over whether or not it's, it's wrong to eat meat offered to idols because, hey, it's cheaper to buy the stuff, you know, after it's sacrificed to the false gods and the false gods don't exist. So, yeah. like, no harm done. And yet it becomes this, this really, um, you know, conscience-bothering activity that, that Paul has to talk about. And then, you know, Peter has that vision of, of all the food laid out mm-hmm. and God says, don't call anything unclean that I've called clean. And, and yeah, so, so all of that data, when you th- start thinking about it, uh, you realize that in scripture, food and drink are represented in complex ways and it reflects at least to some extent, the, the complexity that surrounds them in, in our own lives. You know, there's not a simple way of looking at this. It's easy for me. And I think my instinct is to want to say, you know, let's, let's focus on feasting, (laughs) you know, let's focus on the good. And I think there's a lot to be said for that. But then we also have the, the other side of the coin, like uh, the effects of, of sin on creation and the downside of those things as well. And so it's, um, I don't know. I think it's just a rich topic to reflect on and to think about. If we wanted to kind of look at a fundamental reality, though, I think there's some things we can understand by virtue of our our givenness, our, our createdness. Human beings do not live by bread alone, as Jesus points out, and yet they do not live without it. Mm-hmm. So there is something fundamental, like a fundamental need that we have, a dependence that we have as human beings on eating and drinking in order to sustain us. And so I think we can look at that reality and understand that there is at the core, like an essential goodness, uh, an essential humanness to eating and drinking. Like we were made to eat and to drink. And and that says something powerful, I think, about our relationship to food and drink. Yeah. Yeah. I think it was uh, 
Alexander Schmemann, is that how you mm-hmm. say his name? And in his book, For the Life of the World, yes. in one of those opening chapters, he's he talks about how it's interesting that human beings eat the creation. You know, God makes this world and then human beings literally like pull it into their bodies and digest it. And that this is like something they're supposed to do. You know, these, these trees and the vegetation and how this is actually kind of a, an act of worship. He's, he's painting it as an act of Eucharistic worship of giving back to God by, by taking his creation and doing with it what you're supposed to. And you can't live independently of it. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? There's as individualistic as we can be, there is no way for human beings to survive apart from the larger world. Uh We, we need to cultivate the, the world that God has made we need it to bring forth fruit in order to sustain us. We, we cannot live without that relationship. Yeah. So maybe what we could do here is, is think about food and drink in terms of creation, fall, and redemption. Hmm. Because sometimes we just talk about the whole story of Scripture in that way. And I think what we're doing now is talking about the goodness of the, the createdness of food and drink and how it's, it's a part of creation by God's design and a part of our nature by God's design. But obviously it takes a a turn very quickly. So when you think about how the fall impacts our relationship with food, what comes to mind either from our own world experiences or other stories in scripture? Yeah. I mean, I, I think, you know, that, that the sort of fraught and, and complex relationship that people these days have to food can all be traced back to the fall, mm-hmm. right? That, that, that there is this strange paradox that you know we we have to eat we have to drink and so these things are essential and they're good but it's possible to eat the wrong things it's possible to eat too much or too little it's possible you know to get it wrong in so many different ways to eat the wrong things or you know something like that that uh whether you think in terms of you know eating disorders or or the ethics of food Mm -hmm. Or is it just simply in terms of self-discipline, right? And what's good or healthy for you. Like really all of those things are connected to the the effects of sin on the goodness of eating and drinking, right? And so there's a sense in which like we all are, uh, put it this way, like it's impossible for us to think about food and drink without taking sin into account, Right. When when dessert comes to the table and you look at it and you think of it as something, you know, sinfully delightful. Right. The, those two ideas, it's it's an indulgence that we shouldn't, but we will. Yeah. That kind of conflict, I think, is is a um, is a way that the the consciousness of of creation and fall intention is part of our everyday lives. Or is that just a cultural thing? You know, is that yeah. just the, do we just think about sugar in a bad way? Or is that actually like a sinful conscience thing? Well, I, I mean, I don't know that it's a sinful conscience. Like, I think okay. it is, you know, a joking sort of thing. But but in the same way that, um, you know, myths often have a kernel of reality, I think that it's not an accident that we recognize that there's a, a downside, right? There's a downside to overindulgence. There's a downside to... You know, eating things that don't agree with you, you know, that you're allergic to or, or whatever it is, you know, we're talking about feasts coming around the table. And one of the most complicated aspects of that is, is like who can eat what, 
right? So, which isn't just a question of, of taste, like who likes this and who dislikes it. But in some cases it could be, uh, you know, who has an allergic reaction to this, um, who dies if they eat this, yeah. you know, a, a lot of complexity around something as simple and necessary as sharing a meal together. And I think all of that, all of that is, it's deeply practical, but it all relates back to that brokenness because there's this, you know, communion that we naturally desire. And yet, even, even as we joke about it, we, we acknowledge that there's a brokenness to that communion. Yeah. Last night too, we actually had a conversation about some of these systemic issues surrounding food production, at least in America. And, and I think those two can be traced back to, to sin. And, and part of it is like human ignorance, not knowing what to do or how to produce food that's good for our own bodies or trying to create artificial foods that turn out to actually be really bad for us or whatever it is. And then humans getting caught up in that system and eating whatever is popular or something and it, you know, and it's not good. And I think that's another layer of it that sometimes I think it's become more popular to talk about, you know, the ethics of food, like you brought up and not just my own decisions, but the decisions of American culture at large. And I think it's easy, especially it's easy for like a a conservative, traditional minded Christian to look at that and think, um, Oh, there's something uh, frivolous or, or, you know, very 21st century about this over scrutiny, over scrutinization of, of what we eat. But I think what I want to suggest is anytime people become more conscious of the way in which sin and, and the corruption that comes from sin affects every aspect of life, uh, your inner Calvinist should rejoice that people are waking up to this, even if it's a selective awakening, you know, and, and we're over scrutinizing one thing and, and ignoring something else. I I think that ability to scrutinize and to find fault with our accepted practices is actually something that we want to encourage because it's that kind of, um, realization, I think, that that brings an awareness of the need for grace. You know, there's a certain point at which a person becomes so conscious of, um, you know, the, the food chain and how compromised something like that is, when you could actually despair of the possibility of of eating any righteous dish, you know, that, that literally every possibility is tainted. And and they told me this was organic and they told me this was free range. And it turns out, you know, it's not as righteous as I thought it was. And, and I think that sort of realization, right. That, that it is impossible to take a bite or take a sip that is untouched by sin. Again, theologically, like, like, isn't this what we believe? Like, isn't this what we see as the problem in the world, right? And, and why we need uh, a greater solution than just a, a better set of rules, you know? Well, maybe we can talk about then how, how do you think grace, the gospel influences our relationship with food? And, and I have one particular angle I'd like to explore, which is, it has to do with what you mentioned earlier about allergies or, or Christians coming to the table together but having different needs or 
different assumptions even about sure. food. It's kind of like our, our political conversations, you know, you have right. different views of politics and you come around the table, you have, you have different views of food or you have different needs with respect to food. And we hope that we can still eat together like we did last night and it was great, but, but it's true. Some people can't eat some things. Some people just prefer not to eat some things. Uh, some people don't care at all. And, and that can be difficult. And I think it, right. I want to say too, like it's the holiday seasons right now. You know, I'm about to go see my family big family next week. And then we're going to keep eating for about the next month straight. <laughs> and I think I, I'm just, you know, I want to, I want to talk, how can the gospel help us over the next few months? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, like the one note that I shouldn't sound, but I, I will anyway, is, <laughs> is just to point out as you anticipate uh, this season of feasting, that gluttony is still a sin. Yeah. Yeah. Right. That, that we have um, very clearly, in scripture, the idea of like overindulgence, um, as you know, the absence of, of self-discipline is as being a, a, a sinful trait. And I think that we have to be conscious of that at all times, you know, and, but I also think that, you know, therein lies the tension because if we're going to say, you know, let's talk about restoration, like how yeah. does grace speak to this? It seems to me that, that the way that grace speaks to it is, is a sort of, uh, not a, well, I was going to say a positive excess, you know, like an overabundance, right? And so there's a kind of sanctified, yeah, yeah, right. There's this, this, this sanctified overflowing that takes place and that's not gluttony. That's not overindulgence, right? That's, that's plenty. And so th those two ideas I think are, are the two sides of the coin. So where we have like gluttony and all the negatives associated with overindulgence and the other side, we have feasting and, and plenty and, and all of the goodness and bounty that's associated with grace. So when you think about your, your, especially your new Testament data, you know, you mentioned earlier, Jesus comes, Jesus turns water into wine, right? Jesus comes and he feeds the multitude with, loaves and fish, but, but, his, and then 12 baskets left over. Exactly. <laughs> you know, for the exactly. disciples. I mean, his abundance. miracles, Jesus is a, he's, he's a savior who feeds his people. I mean, you think of the Emmaus road, you know, and they knew him in the breaking of the bread. Like there's so many uh, levels in which our physical dependence on eating and drinking is a pointer to our spiritual dependence on Christ. But all of those markers that you have with him uh, are positive, right? That there's, there's a, an overcoming of that past uncleanness, like there's a breaking down of the barriers that were there before so that the accusation against Jesus, you know, in contrast to John the Baptist is that he's come eating and drinking, you know, he's not this, this self-denying wilderness prophet guy. I mean, he, he, the accusation that the Pharisees make is he receives sinners and eats with them, you know? And so I think, what Jesus models for us is, is feasting, you know, it is hospitality. And so where grace transforms that scenario, I want to say it transforms it specifically in that, that point of hospitality. It's not just the, that the individual can eat and drink in celebration, but that we can come together and that we can like open our table to others, that's specifically the the picture of grace that uh, the gospel gives us. Yeah, 
So do you think it has anything specific to say about what we eat? I, I don't want to be too doctrinaire yeah, about yeah. that. You know, I mean, there's, there's always, you know, a book about, you know, what is the Jesus diet or, you know, <laughs> things like that. And, and I definitely don't want to take sides in any of those debates, but, but I think just the idea of hospitality and graciousness suggests to us some things. We live in a fallen world. And so when we come together, we do come together with various, um, you know, difficulties, whether, you know, it's difference of taste or, or, you know, health or whatever it is. And, and I think there is something gracious and hospitable about accommodating those things. Right. Right. And, and that we should always come to the table expecting it to be an unequal table, like a table of, of people who are brought together some, you know, more able than others. And, and so we accommodate one another in that way. And that's, that's part of, uh, opening our tables. And so I think all of that is important. Um, so rather than saying, you know, this is what we should eat and that's what we shouldn't eat. I almost want to say it's, it's maybe more important to, um, to be careful in like, like judging or condemning mm. the weakness of others. I mean, that's for me at the heart of, of Paul's discussion about meat offered to idols is, is this idea of one's own conscience needing to take into account the, the weak conscience of others, even if they're wrong about what they believe, you know, and that kind of putting others first is, you know, what the table is all about. Yeah. That's really helpful. I think too, you know, you could be hosting or you could be the guest and there's something to be said for for showing up to the table of another with a sense of openness and gratitude for whatever whatever they're going to offer you you know and we can get we can get so particular about what we do and don't eat or what diet we're currently on that we can show up at a feast and be disappointed that we're being offered something we normally wouldn't right but there's you know, I, I wonder if grace also transforms our our gratitude in that moment where we say, I, you know, I recognize that they put work into this. They, they, you know, they thought about this. They're trying to bless me. And insofar as you can to partake in that with gratitude and not, not complaining or not, you know, not like distancing yourself from the table by not participating. Cause I think that would kind of break up the community in a sense, wouldn't it? Yeah. I think that's a great point. Um, as, as a notoriously picky eater myself, <laughs> I, I always, um, I feel bad for anyone who has to host me, you know, because I feel like there's a lot of anxiety that goes along with that experience. Yeah, you there know? Is, there like, is. like what is, what is okay, you know, to, to serve this, this abnormal person. And I always say, you know, don't take my peculiarities into account, you know, that, that I'll be there and I'll participate. And it's not important that, you know, the things I like beyond the menus, like if there's something I can eat, great. If there's not, that's great too. And it's not a big deal or like, you know, choosing restaurants. I always hate the thought that, that the choice of where we have to go is going to be limited by me and, and my horizons. It's like, no, please, you know, let, let's not make me the arbiter. Partly because 
of that dynamic that you're talking about, that, that it would be easy for someone with my peculiarity to say, well, it'd be easier like for me just not to be included. And then it would be easier on the other side just not to include me, mm-hmm. right? Because it's monotonous. <laughs> you know, we can, we can only go to two places or, you know, whatever it is. So I think in, on both sides, there has to be that sort of, um, uh, to use some Westminster confession language, voluntary condescension. Mm. You know, there's an accommodation of, of one another in that gracious way. Because again, you know, we, we're looking at, you know, creation, fall, redemption, and, but not yet restoration, right? So even here in this realm of grace, we're, we're graciously accommodating weaknesses and shortcomings and, and that sort of thing. And so I, th- I think, you know, that's obviously, you know, spiritually we see um, all of the, the, the table and the, the, the feasting of the New Testament is, 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 um, picture of what is to come when all things are restored. So when we do these things, I think it's good always to do them with that in mind. You know, when we feast, let's feast, let's celebrate, let's not let uh, the fact that, that all things are not yet made new be an impediment to that joy. Uh, let's feast as if you know, the kingdom were fully realized. And uh, part of the way you do that, though, is is recognizing the the shortcomings and weaknesses of others, you know? Well, we couldn't finish this episode without mentioning Paul's passage in first Corinthians 10, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. And maybe that's a good way to end, you know, going into the holiday season that, that food, he specifically calls out food and drink as a a means to glorify God. Right. Right. And I think when he does that, you know, he's, he's really channeling Jesus, you know, Jesus who, points out it's not what goes into us that defiles us, but what goes out, you know, and I think that that's, let's say a a timely holiday meditation as well, because when we gather around the holiday table, notoriously, it can be a place of strife and conflict Mm -hmm. and you get together with people and, and, uh, you're sharing a meal, but it's also, you know, an opportunity for some rhetorical violence, you know, with family members who don't agree with you and that sort of thing. And so it's important to, to remember that uh, we can set aside the anxiety over what goes into us and focus on what goes out and, and the words we speak and the behavior that we show at the table and, and making sure that that is gracious. Thanks for listening. In this episode, I mentioned a wonderful theology curriculum called For the Life of the World, Letters to the Exiles, and Cameron referenced a beautiful book by the same name by the Russian Orthodox priest Alexander Schmemann. We'll put links to both the curriculum and the book in the show notes. In the notes, you'll also find a link to another book that I can't end the episode without recommending. It's Robert Farrer Capon's magnificent book, The Supper of the Lamb. This is a rich guide to the theology of food, among other things, which even includes recipes. I feel like you've been our guest for an intellectual and theological feast. We hope you'll join us next time. 
In the meantime, if you've enjoyed the commentary, you can rate us on your favorite podcast app and share episodes with your friends on social media. You can subscribe to the commentary on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. To find out more about us online, visit graceforsuefalls.org.